Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Asquith Hour. This is my first day recording on Anchor. It's going to be a bit of an experiment. Hopefully the sound quality is better. I found the sound effects button and I've even worked out how to add music so we can have some funky background to our introductions. This is going to be fun. That was a piece of music by a band called AWOL Nation, which I picked totally at random because it starts with the letter A on my list of songs, and I wanted to test out what happened if I put music in the background. Of course, now I think about it, one of the recurring themes of the first few episodes of this attempt at a podcast has been exactly how AWOL my nation really is, so now I have a theme tune. So... I've had a little bit of feedback so far on what I'm trying to do with this, which is gradually to extend beyond five or six minutes into something a little bit meatier, albeit hopefully not too long, so people can still engage with it every day. And people have asked me, well, have you never done this before? Why not? How many takes are you using? Are you recording something larger and editing it? And the short answer is that I'm far too lazy and incompetent to do anything like that. So pretty much I'm sitting down with my phone, I'm pressing record, I'm blathering on for five minutes, and unless I really cock something up, I'm not going back and re-recording it, and I'm not spending any time editing it. So what you're getting is almost as live. So let's make a start on talking about some ideas for Israeli policy going forward. Today, a few words about education. Now, I am not an expert on the education side itself, but I've been giving some thought as to how to fund comprehensive educational reform in Israel. Some of the things that we do know for sure are that there is a huge disparity in infrastructure and performance between the top and the bottom. The top, it won't surprise you to know, tends to be a fairly Ashkenazi white elite in the Tel Aviv area, and things peter down in exactly the stereotypical curve you would expect the further you get away from that benchmark in ethnic and geographical and demographic terms, the worse you get in output until the Haredim and the Arabs sit pretty much at the bottom of the pile, especially the ones living far away. What that means is that Israel is routinely doing about the worst in the OECD countries on the PISA score, Even when you perm out the results from the Arab and Haredi communities, Israel is lower quartile. So we shouldn't be resting on our laurels and saying, well, it's not our fault, we have to humor these people or drag them along with us and they're just a weight. And I don't think that's a viable excuse. Not only that, but we know that there is a corresponding uplift in GDP from investment in education that improves your PISA score, which is the sort of base benchmark, if you will, for educational well-being and of course performance. We know from the UK experience that the pandemic has only deepened some of these divides. The haves immediately switched to Zoom classes and 
sophisticated methods of maintaining their presence in an online classroom, the have-sums got a few lessons online and a little bit of support, and the have-nots more or less found that their entire curriculum was destroyed for the year. Now, I haven't seen any results of such surveys in Israel. The educational disparity is in some ways a little less because they don't have the concept of private schools and grammar schools and so on. It's pretty much all just state comprehensive or the equivalent with a handful of outlier exceptions. So the differences really, as described, are geographical and demographic. So the question is, what do we do about this gigantic shortfall in infrastructure and teaching quality? So as it stands, and again, I think this is reflected in a lot of modern societies, the dynamic that used to exist between the parent, teacher, the school administrators, the Ministry of Education, the pupils themselves, is really breaking down. And we need to try and find a way to bring back the careful balance and the constant flow of information between those different parties for the benefit of the kids in the end. And we need to give the kids much more trust than, than we have done in the last few years. The internet has changed everything. We are no longer the sole arbiters of what kids are going to find out, not about anything. Uh, these days, children are jumping ahead in the things that they're interested in because they can just pick up their phone and they can Google it. And there's an extent to which I think probably children's brains are being rotted by the presence of the internet the other way around. If there's something they're not interested in or they can't be bothered to work out, they know that at the end of the day they can scramble an answer through Google as well. So it's a double-edged sword, the internet. And it is, I think, probably pushing people towards being much more specialised in a certain number of areas that they really are into and they are becoming too thinly spread uh, in terms of the kind of general knowledge that we were required to have. And that kind of instant access to information is eroding certain parts, at least as far as I'm concerned, of the human experience. So I chose to major in modern languages and here I am in Cuba and one of the absolute pleasures that I have of spending so much time here as a Spanish speaker is the ability to assimilate fairly well into the local culture, to be able to hang out with people, make new friends, read the local newspapers, listen to the local radio and really get a flavour of what's actually going on here. And what these technologies do is they take away any particular need to study languages to any great extent. Google Translate not only allows you to hold your phone up to the menu and tells you what everything is, more sophisticated apps, including the latest version of Google Translate, will even let you press a button and you speak in your language and it regurgitates in an actual voice into the language of the person you're trying to communicate with and then does the same in reverse. So now somebody's phone is a perfectly good proxy for a four-year degree in terms of what the ambition of most people is, which is simply to be understood and to understand on basic issues when they are in these different countries. And I'm not sure what it is that they're relying on to try and really get under the skin of the local culture. 
I think one of my fears is that actually we've started to homogenize these cultures so much anyway and Google is allowing people to do almost too much research so there's no surprises when you go on holiday anymore you know what it is you're going to see and that's why you've chosen to go there to see it in person but then it begs the question well you have no wonder when you see whatever this thing is and in fact the main question is how do I get myself lined up with my selfie stick so that I can take a beautiful Instagram shot and show people that I'm here rather than living in the moment of that experience now I've talked about travel before and written about it fairly extensively. You can read it on Medium. I'll try and remember to put a link somewhere in what Joe Rogan calls the show notes. But now that I'm saying all of this out loud, I'm realizing that at the root of all of this is our education or the way in which technology has encroached hugely on education. And I think technology also obviously has a role in eroding a lot of the confidence between parents, teachers and pupils as well. That's partly because in the same way as the pupil has access to just as much information as the teacher does, if not more because they're a little bit more au fait with the technology to do so, and they're more inclined to use it, I think the same goes for parents. Previously, we gave a lot more respect to teachers and our parents very much did too. The teachers were there in loco parentis, that's part of the reason why, and, and also because it was, I think, a much more respected profession. And in days where you had to retain such information in your head and if you wanted to present it to your pupils, you had to do it yourself and you had to engage them. And now we know that there are all sorts of gadgets. You can sit them in front of a YouTube clip you can send them off to play some kind of gamified educational program on an iPad, whatever it is. So tech has intervened in what is the purpose of education. So I think we've lost track of not just the output, but the importance of the input as well. That's to say that the actual, the process of learning is in itself probably the core learning experience which sounds quite meta but what I mean by that is that you go to school not to learn the facts but to learn how to learn the facts and then how to assimilate those facts into an ability to engage with the world and we are now finding that we're churning out kids who simply don't have that take on things they are prone to just looking things up to win their argument. Oh, well, this guy said it on the internet, you know, an appeal to authority. And often that authority is Wikipedia, which, albeit I know that there's some value in the crowd and the crowd editing things, and we do seem to get to a fairly good working average, I'm not convinced that we are doing much for the genuine independence of thought of people anymore. And in fact, what I've found as someone who is very opinionated, which is why I'm recording a podcast, I think people are really these days confounded by somebody who has opinions of their own that are genuinely developed just from seeing the world and not from being an utter consummate, very narrowly focused specialist in one given field, which allows that sense of, oh, phew, he has the authority. So I find that I posit an idea and the first reaction I get from especially younger people is, well, who told you that? what's your source for that and it's like there are just some universal truths there's there's some natural law out there and I don't think that people are being taught in a way that 
gives young people access to the confidence of their own minds anymore. What I've realised is that I've now talked for about eight straight minutes and I've actually gone completely off the topic of what the hell we do about Israel's educational system, but we'll cover it tomorrow and hopefully this is a little bit of a relevant introduction in the end because it gives you some idea of what my concerns are about what's going wrong with the educational system and my experience of dealing with Israeli kids is really that this is at the root of a lot of these problems. There is a horrific parent-teacher-pupil relationship. Again, a lot of it is the stereotype that in my experience and the experience of my friends and their kids I think is, is true, which is that there has been a deterioration in the classroom atmosphere in Israel. Teachers are demoralized and underpaid. Pupils have a tendency to run riot or the loudest pupils do and ruin it for everybody else parents who used to take the side of the teacher against their child in any kind of disciplinary matter now routinely assume that the teacher must be to blame and that their precious wonderful child can't have possibly put a foot wrong. I, I'm not quite sure when we made this change but like I said I suspect tech has something to do with it. Having said that as we go into this discussion about policy technology is also going to be the cure. So just to wrap this up for the time being, why is it that I said earlier that children actually need to be trusted more when most of what I've just said probably sounds like the opposite? So that comes down to the ability for us to use technology as a force for good and for persuading kids that actually they should want to have a broad knowledge base in their own brains and not just on their phones. And that there is a unique and rare pleasure, not to mention a lot of real world reward, to being able to contain multiple different sources of information and different ideas in one place, rather than simply resorting to looking them up each time. And that that gives our brains the opportunity to actually build something new from what they've learned. Our brains are still by far the most powerful processing machines on the planet, and I think that young people simply don't believe that anymore, and that might be at the root of what we're doing wrong. And having said that, and without wishing to go down another giant rabbit hole, I think that that issue, that we've lost that instinct, that we can trust ourselves and we can trust in our own brain power and our own independence of thought, is also what's deteriorating all of those various aspects of the schooling system. There's a lack of trust in ourselves and each other, so parents, teachers, pupils, school administrators and the education ministry simply don't trust that they know better either than each other or than their own predecessors and therefore there's no motivation to really try something new and the status quo is failing us. It can't possibly keep up with the level of change in society. So just to try and lay the groundwork for the next part of this conversation, to do things the way that I think are necessary is going to involve a complete rewriting of the hardware and software of an educational system. And that is a very expensive thing to pay for. And Israel is also quite unique in terms of who it has to educate and the huge disparities that I started by talking about. So this can't be a one-size-fits-all solution. It has to be multilingual, it has to be multicultural in the 
I would say, real world rather than fluffy sense of that word. Because right now, Israeli society essentially is relying on outliers to drag the entire economy and the entire country up to the OECD levels. We have a handful of geniuses who, despite rather than because of our educational system, are creating these incredible companies and driving society to the next level. These people are increasingly mobile and the internet is showing them what else there is in the world and it's why every other major tech hub around the world is chock full of Israelis too and not just second and third generation Israeli entrepreneurs either. Now that's where people go first time round. So Brand Israel potentially is actually a long-term undoing of ours. We have to do something to firstly create a wider base of where these great, not just entrepreneurs, but actually now I think about it, of course, very good public servants, very good teachers, very good doctors and so on are all going to come from. And these are all human resources that we're beginning to diminish as a percentage of our population. In a future episode, although God knows when that will be, at the extent to which I seem to be expanding every short policy conversation into a 20-minute diatribe, we'll talk about startup nation versus sellout nation versus small and medium nation or whatever else. I finally petered out and lost my train of thought, so I'll leave it there, and hopefully when I play this back in the morning it will appear more coherent than it does right now. Thanks for sticking with me.